So um, we've been going through Philippians, as you're aware, um, and if you weren't here last week, um, Ruby, who's our intern and um, is going off to actually work as a PA uh, for a large church in Cambridge, who left last week, she actually was preaching. Ruby's got such a passion for theology, uh, and um, she was brilliant. And if you haven't heard it, it's a great talk. It's online. I'm sure it's online already. Do I encourage you to go and listen to, to Philippians 3. I mean, giving anybody a whole chapter um, to preach on in an evening is quite tricky. So strap yourselves in for the next four hours as we look at Philippians 4. No, we won't do that. But I mean, it's, you know, there's so much stuff in Philippians. Philippians is such a great book. And I don't know, for those of you that hopefully read the Bible daily or maybe you listen to an app, um, you know, there's so many brilliant ones out there. Um, talk to Bill and Carol, they've always got such great ideas and such a passion for reading the Bible. And there's all sorts of resources they could talk to you about. Um, a number of us here really love Lexio 365, um, which is kind of came out of the prayer 24-7 movement, Pete Gregg and that sort of stuff. It's brilliant Bible verses and thoughts and meditation and reflection. However you read scripture, keep doing that. But there is something really helpful about um, reading like a whole letter through in quite, you know, one chunk or over a short period of time. Because lots of us will know bits of Philippians, you know, the passages really well. But there's something really helpful about reading it through, which is why we've, you know, over the last four weeks, we've read one chapter at the beginning, because it's good to get it in context, because it was a letter, right? It wasn't, we live in the world of sound bites, don't we? Political sound bites. So a politician says something, and it might sound quite good, or it's very tweetable. I mean, and, and it seems to me that more politicians are more worried about saying something that can be tweeted that sounds meaty. But often when you've heard it, you go, oh, that's good. And you think, but actually, I have no idea really what you think or what you mean. It sounds good, but it doesn't really tell me anything. Um, and sometimes we, we can be guilty of doing a little bit like that with the Bible. We take a bit we really know well, and, and it's great to have verses that speak to us. But sometimes we forget its context is, the part, is, is part of a bigger thing. So lots of the verses that you'll have heard tonight in Philippians, you'll think, oh yes, that's all, that's in Philippians chapter 4. Is it? But it's part of the letter. And let's not forget, he, you know, he's writing to, to brothers and sisters, you know, encouraging them, challenging them sometimes in some of his letters. So it's really good to read it through either a chapter at a time or to actually just say, okay, do you know what, this morning I've got 20 minutes, I'm going to read the whole of Philippians, four chapters. It doesn't take long at all. Um, the good news is, uh, in, I can't remember because I haven't got <laughs> none of the team are here who help. Tamsin, can you remember? I can't remember. We're going to do Ephesians at some point, aren't you? I can't remember when we're doing it. Yeah, are we, says Tamsin. Yes, we are. <laughs> at some point. Uh, I, think it might be, I think it might be October we'll go through, but we're going to go through Ephesians. We're going to do it in a similar way. We're also going back to doing some seminars, which have been really popular, where we have these seminar streams, um, breaking down into different groups, much more interactive questions on the evenings, and we're doing some teaching, lifestyle, kind of discipleship, as well as some ethical issues and Bible stuff, but we're going to do one of, I think the next book we're going to do is Ephesians, which again, there's so much stuff in Ephesians. I know me and my family are quite excited by doing that, because we're actually going to Ephesus this summer, we're going to go and have a little look at the place, which kind of makes stuff come alive, doesn't it, if you've been to some of these places. So, Philippians, whole of the chapter, what on earth can we look at tonight in it? Paul closes the letter and reminds Philippians that their citizenship resides in heaven. This was last week, do you remember? Ruby was at great pains to try to explain, you know, what is heaven? Is it just something you're waiting for and then you die and you sit on a cloud? No, Paul's really excited about kind of 
citizenship of heaven, but it isn't just this sort of one day I'll go and die and float away and be kind of up in the clouds somewhere. Ruby explained really brilliantly and very theologically soundly about what, what does Paul mean about heaven? New heaven, new earth, and why should we be excited? And not just excited for the future, but why should we be therefore kingdom people seeking to bring heaven to earth now, God's rule and reign on earth now? Well, because we're in the now and the, and the not yet. We're not in heaven yet, but we're called to be citizens of heaven that establish God's rule on earth. And so, you know, the, our lives are supposed to mean something, and they're supposed to be an adventure, and there will be challenges, but we're called to serve God. Our knowledge of who we are in Christ and our future inheritance of what's to come inspires us and encourages us to live a life that is different, to live a life full of faith, but also with confidence. And if we're honest, there's not a lot of that around at the moment. You, you read the news. I mean, I don't know if you read the news or listen to the news. It's quite hard, isn't it? Engaging with the news at the moment. Not just because it feels like it's all bad news, but because the tone of politicians and the tone of the media and the tone of everyone is, it's hard, it's going to get harder, we don't really have solutions, we'll do the best we can. I don't think that's God's answer. God would say, yes, it's hard, yes, there are challenges, but I'm the God of solutions. And I'm the God of hope, who fills you with all joy and peace, that you can trust in me, you know, if you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to be a people of confidence. And what's our confidence based in? Well, I think it's some of the things that we hear through all of Philippians, but particularly in chapter, ten, uh, chapter 4. Now, if I was a brilliant Bible teacher, and I'm more of a preacher, most of you know that, I would give you the next list of things all beginning with the same letter. But given there are ten of them, I might be pushing my luck a bit. And I'm not going to preach on all these ten. I'm actually going to preach on one thing that I felt God spoke to me about particularly. But so that you don't feel shortchanged, I'm going to give you, I think, ten things. There could be more. There are more. But there are ten things that kind of headline points from Philippians. And here they are. And each one could be preached on for a week. But I won't. I won't. But I'm going to rattle through these ten. Because if you're taking notes or if you're listening online. That might be helpful to go back and look at it in detail afterwards from these ten. But I want to talk about one particular thing. But just for these these ten things, because tonight I want to talk about joy. Because I don't think there's a lot of joy out there in the world at the moment. And I think God wants us to be people of joy that help transform the world. So number one from Paul, stand firm. Those are good words for today. The reality of this world is that um, we as believers were created by God to not just get through and survive. You know, Jesus said he came to bring life and life to the full. But actually for us as Christians and believers, it's not just about the now. There will be a day where we see breakthrough. When Jesus comes back, as Ruby brilliantly explained last week, and wraps everything up and sets the whole world right. But until that time, we're called to stand firm, not to be crushed, not to be overwhelmed, not to be overcome. Yes, there will be waves and challenges and difficulties, but the, the, the word from Paul is, stand firm. And you can stand firm. You might think you've not got enough strength, you might feel you've not got enough energy, not enough faith, not enough gifts. In this broken world we live in, everything feels so overwhelming. But Paul wants you to know that ultimately your citizenship belongs in heaven. And that gives you hope for tomorrow and hope for today. And because of that, you can stand firm, even when you're feeling really weak. But sometimes we need to encourage each other. Maybe you feel a bit worn down. Well, this is where we get alongside people and go, it's okay, stand firm and I'll stand with you. Stand firm, verse 1. So 
Verse 2, be united. Uh, verse 2. It's, it's really, really interesting. Even in the church of Philippi, there are divisions amongst the leadership. You know, the truth is, someone once said to me, you know, if you find a perfect church, don't go to it because it won't be perfect anymore. The, tr- the truth is, even the most perfect sin churches, there will be challenges, there'll be disagreements, there'll be, you know, maybe hidden, sometimes painfully, we know all too aware, very visible, and you get divisions between churches and you get sides and all the rest of it. And Paul's pleading, don't be divided. Paul exhorts these women to unite together in the Lord. And when we come together for the good of the church, the good of his people, for, for kind of God's glory, then it's incredibly powerful. And then we begin to encourage each other rather than compete with each other. Which is why I always want to pray for churches in the city. That's why I want to bless Whitcomb Baptist just down the road here. I want to pray that they're fruitful, that their ministry explodes, that they reach lots of families and children. And you might think, well, well can't we have that? Well, yeah, of course I'd love that. But, but they're my brothers and sisters, and that's the church, their family. And life church, and freedom. I want to pray for all the, all the churches, maybe the churches that in our own hearts there have been challenges with, or we've been hurt by. Churches back through our history. But we pray for God to bring healing and unity recognising sometimes the very real division and pain, but praying God's blessing helps change our hearts and often restores relationships. And Paul's pleading, be united, be together. It's a real important thing. Number three, always rejoice. Verse four, Paul emphatically commands the church to always rejoice in the Lord, regardless of our circumstances. This is kind of what I want to particularly talk about tonight. And that can be really hard, and yet I think it's incredibly powerful. Always rejoice. Number five, imbibe gentleness. What do I mean by that? Did I put imbibe? I did. Um, imbibe is like soak up, drink up, kind of saturate yourself with. Verse, verse five says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Gentleness, I think, is an incredibly undervalued, powerful gift. People who are gentle sometimes get sort of not seen, don't they? But actually gentleness is incredibly powerful. It's not a weak, it's not a kind of like a floppy, sort of floaty-woaty thing. It's incredibly powerful. Gentleness breaks through all sorts of things. And Paul speaks in the context of, context of adversity, where there's lots of challenges and problems, where there's, and often we're struggling with our own sense of inadequacy or we're wanting to compete, and, and Paul's saying... Choose gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all. It's a powerful witness. Let gentleness permeate every area of who you are. I know when there's stuff wrong in my own heart and life. Because instead of gentleness coming out, I find myself being brusque with people, or kind of aggressive, or angry, or short-tempered. Those are so opposite of gentleness. Number five. Tough one. Four, verse six. Paul tells the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything. Is there anyone in the room who's not anxious about anything? Mm. So what's he saying when he says that? Well, sometimes our feelings overwhelm us. But Paul has some advice, and we're going to briefly look at that later on. Link to it, number six, always pray, always with thanksgiving. It's another challenge, isn't it? Do we always pray? Do we always pray with thanksgiving? The solution to anxiety seems to be seeking God in prayer with a kind of heart of thankfulness that we can even do that and bringing those things to him 
everything to him, including our weaknesses, our failures, our struggles, but we're to go to him, we're to pray to him and expect to see breakthrough. And to do that with gratitude, that's hard, we'll talk about that. But what's the fruit of it? Well, I think it is verse 7, let God's peace rule. We're told to let God's peace rule our uh, kind of our hearts. And God's peace surpasses all understanding. I don't know if you've ever had that situation where you've had a really tough something in your life, but you've prayed about it, and this is kind of slightly ludicrous peace that you feel, even though you're, and you almost get a bit worried that you don't, you should, you're not as anxious as you feel you should be. But that's the peace of God. I also think the peace of God is incredibly helpful in terms of guidance. You know, sometimes when we're asking for guidance about something, and we're looking for maybe a job or a relationship or a decision we're making, and we'd like God to write it across the sky. You need to do this. Choose him. Whatever it might be, you know, whatever that might be. We kind of think, I'd love it like that. But actually, more often than not, God's guidance often comes through peace. That actually, when we move towards something or a situation, we just feel this peace in our heart. When we've prayed about it and we've given it to God. And likewise, that's most important, when we don't feel peace. I think that's so often a sign that God's saying wait or no or caution. And that we need to listen to that inner voice of peace. When we feel just we can't get it settled, <clears throat> then I think that's God's peace wants to rule our hearts and minds. So we need to listen to that and be obedient to that. Link to that, number eight, guard your mind. Paul talks about thinking about things above. Our minds are a battlefield. Yeah, a raging battlefield. And we all have this, whether it's anxieties or fears or temptations or frustrations, you know, and it can be as awful and stupid as when you're driving in traffic and someone cuts you up and you imagine yourself killing that person. You know, and we think those thoughts, well, maybe that's just me, we think those thoughts in our mind, and, 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 and Paul's saying, guard your mind. You know, what you let in, what dwells in that place will begin to shape you, and what's in here begins to come out of your mouth and your actions. And Paul's saying, Guard your mind. Don't dwell on things that are unhelpful. You know, and, and that, that is about what we watch. It is about kind of the conversations we have. It is about when we become loose with our tongue and whether it's malicious or gossip. It, it's the stuff that starts filling our mind on the stuff that we dwell on that's really unhelpful. And sometimes we chase unhelpful thoughts or fears around our mind and we kind of go with it. <coughs> and Paul's saying... To stop and be aware of what's going on in your mind. And refocus on things above, on what's good, on what's holy, on what's pure, what's, what's of God. That helps combat the kind of negative self-talk, that little voice that we so often hear inside. That dialogue, oh, you're not very good, you're never going to succeed. And we often end up going with that voice. Yeah, no, you're right, I am stupid. Yeah, I am a failure. Yeah, I know, I'm rubbish. And Paul says, guard your mind. That's the real battlefield where the enemy loves to kind of play games. Number nine, learn contentment. Paul talks about you know, the challenges we face and whether he's in plenty or in, in lack, whether he's well, whether he's not well. How can we find contentment in all of those situations, verse 11 to 12? How do we find God in those moments and actually still go on to trust him? Well, we can. I know what it is to have to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. That's hard. But he then says, I can do all things through Christ 
through him who gives me strength. We need God's help with that, to learn true contentment, to not be discontent with life. That's the key, verse, te- uh, verse 13, do it all in God's strength. That's, <laughs> that's in everything, isn't it? Knowing that it's all about him and all for him. So that's kind of Philippians 4. <laughs> there's a lot more in there, but there's some headlines that you can go back and look at and meditate on. You could pick one of them and say, Lord, would you show me what does it mean to be content in my circumstances? Does that mean I should, shouldn't press forward into new things? Does that mean I shouldn't strive for stuff? Well, no, I don't think it's that. But it's the point of that actually you can trust God on that journey. But what I particularly want to talk about is from verse 4 to 7, and I'm going to try and be fairly quick. It's not a lot to say, but it's just to get us to think. From 4 to 7 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I think we live in days where there's not a lot of joy about. I've said that already. Joy is kind of like a struggle. And people try to get joy by, I'll go on holiday. Nothing wrong with holidays, we all need them. But it's always that if I go on holiday, I'll get it. Or if I buy this car, I will be happy. Or if I move to this location. It's fascinating if you look at the statistics of people who moved when COVID hit. And people thought, loads of people thought, I'm going to move to the countryside from London and from other cities. I get it. They, you know, they'd watched Move to the Country or whatever the TV programme's called. They occasionally seen sheep in a field and thought they looked really lovely. They saw some rolling hills and thought, that's the answer to the bring me contentment in my life. And hordes of people moved to the countryside, which is partly why all the prices went up even more crazily around Bath and other areas, because all the kind of DFLs down from London's moved this way, and lots of other people as well. Loads of people bought houses or rented. I was speaking to someone the other day who, who changed jobs, moved with wife and children, rented a big house just on the outskirts of Bath. Six months later, they discovered it isn't quite what they thought it was because they can't get bagels at two o'clock in the morning like they used to, but, you know, Knightsbridge, uh, and they can't get takeaways, and they're in the middle of it. And suddenly they realise, actually, I thought this would bring me joy, but it hasn't fully. We can look for joy in all sorts of places, and some of them can temporarily fill the hole, whether that's relationship or job satisfaction or work. And we as Christians can be as guilty of it. We can go after things that we think will bring us joy. Or I'll go to that church because it will bring me joy. Or I'll do this because it will make me happy. But Paul's not talking about something like that. He's talking about rejoicing from somewhere really deep inside, which isn't about our circumstances. And it's a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. I mean, he really means it because he says, I say it again just in case you didn't get it the first time. Rejoice! Exclamation mark. And then let your gentleness be evident to all. I think Paul's not telling us to do that because we need to strive towards it, but actually because it's a possibility that we can know joy in our circumstances and that it's something we should be perhaps searching and longing after. It's to do with what Ruby was talking about last year understanding our true position as who we are as citizens of heaven with assurance that one day Christ is coming back and that we're going to live and reign with him and and we'll know him fully. But also, it's not just about the future, it's in the now. God's spirit wants to be with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he wants us to experience some of that inheritance on earth right now. And therefore, 
joy for Paul. St Paul is a real hallmark of his letters. And it's like he's, he's encouraging the Philippians and encouraging you and me to be connoisseurs of joy. When I moved to Whitcomb, um, I met quite a lot of people who were real wine connoisseurs. And I have to be honest, I didn't know a great... I mean, you know, I enjoyed a cheap bottle of Merlot like the next person. But, I, you know, I wasn't called myself a connoisseur. I grew up in France. I always had a nice bit of wine. But I met people who would talk about it all the time and had, like, walls of wine. And, you know, they seemed to drink quite a lot of it in very sensible measures. But they were connoisseurs of it. It's like they were passionate about it and they were thirsty for it and they really enjoyed it. Paul's saying joy is something we should be constantly taking in and living in the benefit of it. So who we're supposed to be, a people of joy, it's not an option. It's a command. And that actually, we can find joy because of God. Paul's not wishing kind of good luck on us, saying, well, I hope you find happiness one day. You know, I hope you find joy. Paul's commanding us to abide in God in such a way that our experience is a joy that begins to become who we are in our very personhood. It's like dropping a bucket deep into the bottomless well of God's grace and character and nature and constantly drinking from that which will bring living hope to us and joy rather than drinking from other things to try and give us joy. Where do we go? Where do we feed on? We don't rejoice in happiness and good circumstances like we don't rejoice in sadness and difficult circumstances. What we rejoice in is we rejoice in the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. Rejoice in the Lord. Because he's good all the time, amen? Oh. Thank you, Libby. <laughs> I love that. You know, we were uh, away with my parents and there was a, a, a black church having a conference in this place we stayed. And they were so overflowing with life. And I know if I'd have said to them, you know, amen, that would be but we're Anglican army, so yeah, well, a grunt, I'll take a grunt. We rejoice in the Lord, and God is good all the time, all the time. Regardless of our circumstances, we can rejoice in him, not necessarily in our circumstances, which may be really, really tricky, but actually we can rejoice in him. And Paul's not just telling us to do something because it's a good theological point. You need to keep in mind that Paul mo- mo- wrote this most joyful letter not from a kind of Caribbean beach. He was in prison. <laughs> he was locked up. And he was saying, you know, even in this, I, I want to rejoice. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord because God is good. In every situation. Can we find joy in every situation? Paul repeats himself. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Paul's calling us to become connoisseurs of that deep joy that Jesus provides in every situation. And being thankful. Thankful for what? Thankful for the horrible things that are happening? No, but thankful for good, God's goodness and mercy. I, I shared this once before, but I remember when I lived in France and, and things were really, really tricky out there. And I was never, I'm probably not a moaner by nature, but I remember having a bit of an argument with God one day that because if he was good, the good, good father, he could make some of my circumstances a bit gooder than they were because they didn't feel very good. And the good, good father felt a bit ungood at that point. But I kind of knew that I was sailing close to the wind when I was saying it. But God's very merciful and gracious, isn't he? But I, I, that evening that I had kind of said that, and that was having a bit of a sulk, um, in my Bible study, um, there, was, uh, <laughs> there was 
uh, a quote from, uh, uh, it was actually scratched into the wall. It was a, a Jewish believer who was imprisoned by the Germans in a prison cell, solitary confinement. And he was in a nine foot by nine foot cell for months and months and months on his own. And uh, he, he would try and recite scripture. But he scratched into this cell, in this nine foot by nine foot cell. Thank you, God, that this isn't a six foot by six foot cell. And it kind of made me think, oh my gosh, okay, God. <laughs> I, you know, I moan about a lot of things. And yet here's this man in this situation who's in solitary confinement in a nine foot by nine foot cell and he's found something to give thanks for. Maybe I need to refocus my gaze on what I'm looking at. God is good, but it's all about our perspective. And finding joy and hope and rejoicing in God. It's not that God needs that, but it does something to our own hearts. It does something to our own mind that suddenly we start seeing the world in a different way. We see it through the eyes of optimism and hope. Because people who have joy in them, you know know people who are joy-filled, they bring joy to others, don't they? It's quite hard hanging around with people who are hopeless, who have no joy. I mean, we can love them, <clears throat> but they're not the first person you think of inviting to a party for a kind of really great evening. And you might do because you've got a heart for them, but it's like, okay, this is going to help. But people who have joy, who carry God's joy in them, well, it's, it overflows, it's effervescence. And God wants us to be like that. Now, that does not mean that if we're feeling hopeless or if we're struggling, that God's abandoned us and we're no good. But even in the midst of pain and darkness and challenges, God does, I believe, want to bring some supernatural joy and breakthrough. It depends where our eyes are. And part of the help for that will be taking our eyes and looking at Jesus and giving thanks and finding some things to thank him. I'm reminded of um, Job. Job 19.25, he says this, you know, after all that he went through, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth. It's this kind of triumphant proclamation from Job, everything sucks, <laughs> but I know my Redeemer lives. That's really powerful spiritual warfare. It confronts the enemy who would seek to crush us and make us kind of give up. Something rises up saying, no, God is good. I'm going to praise him and rejoice in who he is. There's a theologian called Karl Barth, an amazing theologian, and when talking about Philippians, one of the reoccurring themes that he talks about is the word, nevertheless. Life is really hard. There are all sorts of challenges. Things are falling around me. Nevertheless, I'll praise God. I'm feeling really weak. I'm feeling really frail. I don't feel I've got much faith. Nevertheless, I'm going to trust in God. Life is painful and discipleship is sometimes hard. Nevertheless, God is on our side and I'm going to choose to rejoice because I believe God has a better tomorrow for me. And when we're choosing to kind of like imbibe and drink in this joy, it begins to help, it begins to help and, and others see it. It's a powerful thing. Our gentleness, our nature becomes more like Christ and that's really, really, really powerful. Paul reminds us, you know, the Lord is near. I don't think that's a scary thing, like, there's nothing worse than having a boss who looks over your shoulder just to check that you're kind of doing your work. It's not like Jesus is looking, so you better be good. But he's coming back. We don't know when, but I can promise you, theologically, for certain, that it's a day closer than it was yesterday. He's coming back, and he longs for his bride to be ready. 
and we need to be people who are ready, joyful in the challenges that we face so that the world can look and say, well, what is your source of joy? Why are you hopeful for tomorrow? Well, it's not because we're really holy and we're really spiritually kind of disciplined. It's because our hope is in Jesus. Because we know that he's coming back. And often our joy, and I'm going to close with this thought, is often spoiled by worry. Worry robs us of joy. Worry overwhelms us. Worry kind of steals from us. It's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a theft. Worry is like the hole that drills into the bottom of the glass you're trying to drink out of, your joy. And you can put as much joy in it and try and drink it, but it's always going to leak out the bottom. Worry steals, it robs. And it might be worries about money, it might be worries about the future, your career, what you're going to study, where you're going to go. It might be about your children or your grandchildren or your relationship that you're in. It might be worried about all sorts of things. And and most of us don't intend to worry. We don't choose to worry. Worry kind of chooses us. It creeps up on us and it sneaks in. You know, it is often in the middle of the night when we're alone. And the enemy comes on the back of it and kind of starts throwing seeds of worry and fear and anxiety and doubt. And Paul takes that threat very seriously. Just as he commands us to rejoice, he commands us to stop worrying. That sounds really hard, perhaps. But he exhorts us to turn our worries into prayer requests. And I think this is one way to really stuff up the enemy. Because if the enemy loves filling your mind with worries, if you get into the habit of turning your worries instantly into prayers, I suspect the enemy will stop giving you worries because he won't like the fact that you're praying about them. Because when we pray, it's warfare. And often the enemy plants worries and fears. But if we get into the... This is where it goes back to having the mind. Taking thoughts, taking captive our thoughts that when a worry's in there, instead of chewing over that worry, like a cow chews the cud, and we think about it and we dwell about it and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, if we choose to go, do you know what? I'm going to take this worry and I'm going to give it to God as a prayer request. And it's like Paul says, take that worry and you give it to God. And, and, and while you're about it, why don't you wrap it up with a bit of thanks, thankfulness, thanksgiving. So we wrap thanksgiving around it. Lord, I, Though I'm really worried about paying the bill at the end of the month, I'm really thankful that you tell me that you're the God who provides. I'm really thankful that you're the good, good Father. So Lord, I'm going to give you this worry. And it slightly disarms it, and it presents it to God, and God sees it as an act of faith that he loves responding to. Paul reminds us that even in the midst of worry, we can be thankful for God's presence, God's provision, God's ultimate victory in the struggle of life. And it's a bit like this. I remember, you know, now seeing Sam over there, he's 18. I remember we've been away this weekend with my kids, but I remember when all three of them were really young, my job as dad, it always seemed to feel like, was to carry all their stuff. Those of you who've had kids will remember this. And you would go out for a walk, and after about five minutes, I'd be carrying Sam's rucksack and Joe's hat and his bottle and Ellie's sweets and goodness knows all the other paraphernalia that she got with that and I'd be kind of like the donkey carrying everything and you know I'd get heavier they'd get lighter and I'd walk along with all their stuff that's the nature of being a parent isn't it it's the nature of being a father and I think that is how we should treat our heavenly father he's wanting to take this stuff off he's willing to take this stuff off but we so often carry these burdens because we feel we should or we don't know how to let go of them Well, the good, good father's walking alongside us going, 
Give it to me. Let me carry it. I'll hold it for you so that you don't have to. And we need to be quicker to say, Father, Papa, will you carry this for me? Because it's really wearing me out. And when we do that, amazing things can happen. When we give God out, our worries wrapped up in a thanksgiving prayer, it's a beautiful thing that the Father loves taking it from us. And when he does that, something ludicrous happens. This sort of spiritual transaction happens that as we give those things to God and genuinely give them, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, can come and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And a peace of God can just take it from us. So it doesn't mean that that worry has disappeared, but it means the Father has it. And I know for myself, sometimes in my life, I can be guilty of giving something to God and then a bit later going and giving it back to God and then giving it to God and giving it to God. And God kind of says, did you not give this to me? You haven't got anything to give anymore. Sometimes we take it back off God so we can give it back to him. Sometimes we give it to God and we need to just leave it with him and trust him. There are times, of course, when we need to keep petitioning and praying and breaking through. But sometimes the Father says, leave it with me. That's an act of faith as well. Father, I genuinely have given you this. Whether it's a job interview or whether it's a career choice. Lord, I'm giving you this. And because I really believe you're the good, good Father, I know you're going to make a way for me. And when that happens, that's a powerful witness. I know Sarah's had this as an evangelist when there have been really tough things going on. I remember when you know, your dad died and your brother, your brother died and people would say to you, how can you still be going? You know, amidst the pain, amidst the very real, evident rawness of it, Sarah was a real inspiration in the way she handed stuff over to God, handed her pain, her frustration, her questions. And it wasn't just visible to me and the family, it was visible to her friends, her, those who were outside of the church, who would look at her and go, how are you getting through this? Well, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is how we get through this isn't like the Lion King, you know, Kuna Matata, you know, this trouble-free kind of like um, no problems, no worries mentality. It's not like, well, we will be fine. You know, that mentality is great for a Disney song, but if, you're, if you've seen the film The Lion King, I'm sure you have. In the end, you know, um, Nala reminds him and says, look, actually... Just pretending these things don't matter is not a way through life. It's not a true way of living. Because actually those problems are real and, and actually you have responsibilities. So we're not talking about just going, oh, that'll be fine. We're actually genuinely talking about genuinely recognising the significance of those things but asking God to intervene. Because you and I, like Simba, are sons of the king. We're royal. We've got a royal birth, birthright. And we need to give our worries to God. And when we do that... Well, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So I'm going to pray for us as I finish now and ask God to help us. And I kind of, when I was thinking about this, I just thought of a practical thing for some of you. Some pe- for some people, this will be helpful. For others, it might not be at all. If you take a piece of paper, if you're facing some questions and challenges and struggles, take a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle. And if on one side you list all the worries that are dominating you, that you kind of genuinely feel that are there. It might be worries about family, it might be worries about health or future or people. If you've got some worries, 
This is just for you, so you look. Write them down on the left-hand side. And then on the right-hand side, for each of those individual worries, why don't you write what you want God to do, your prayer request? That's what Paul says. For all your worries, present them to God with thanksgiving. So write what you want God to do. You have a worry about this situation, this person. Lord, this is what I want you to do. And with a bit of thanksgiving, Lord, I know you're good. I know you're kind. I know you're Emmanuel. I know you've promised to come through. I know you're God of hope. Write your prayer. Actually, write them down. There's something about getting them out in your head. Or if you've got a friend who, you know, you're mentoring, you're discipling, you get them to journey through this stuff with you. Talk it out with someone. Because so often the battle for this stuff is stuck up here in our heads where the enemy messes and God wants to bring freedom. So I want to pray for us in all this for God's joy. And then I'm going to ask the band to come back up and finish. And because that's me, that should be fairly straightforward. Let's take a moment to pray. Jesus, we recognise that in our lives we face all sorts of challenges and joys. And when we hear the words rejoice in the Lord always, we can maybe feel a bit condemned or overwhelmed or inadequate because we're not very good at rejoicing and we certainly don't do it always. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't see this as a bar to measure up to by which we fail in spectacular different measures but that we'd see this as a possibility that is attainable. You desire for your people to be people full of joy, to be able to rejoice in every circumstance, whether good or bad, even in the times of pain or uncertainty, to be able to find joy and hope in the moment, not because of any intrinsic value that we might be able to add to it, but because you are there and you are for us. And if you're for us, who can be against us? Lord, that words of scripture might come to mind to help us in those times, to help us to better rejoice, that no weapon formed against us will stand. That when we choose to stand, it says in Ephesians 6, that after the battle's been kind of won, that we'll find ourselves still standing. That we're not alone. You are Emmanuel, God, with us. That we're not abandoned. You're Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is our banner, and the banner that is over us is one of love. So when we feel like we don't know the way ahead, you remind us that you're our shepherd, the good shepherd who leads us. That you're Jehovah Rafi, Jehovah Rapha, you're the Lord our healer, you're the Lord our shepherd, the one that's able to intervene supernaturally and bring healing. That you're the God who's there, you're Jehovah Shammah. That when we feel unworthy or unlovable, you remind us that you are our righteousness, Jesus that you promise never to leave us as orphans, but you come to us by your Spirit. So Lord, whatever challenges we face, may we be a people of joy and that we'd all do it through your strength. As Paul says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So when the enemy lies to us and says you're not good enough and you're not going to be able to do this, Lord, may the truth rise up in our hearts that says I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And that the same power that rose Christ from the dead is available to us and in us. Dunamis, your dynamite power of the Spirit. So fill us and stir us and help us to rejoice in you, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and finish with a final song.